I'm Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of the Philosophy Department at King's College London and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Cancel Culture, the Inquisition. It was a bleak time. During a reign of pitiless oppression, Europe looked on in horror as one victim after another fell to a force led by calculating Spanish leadership and powered by enormous financial resources. Even the mightiest arsenal could not stop it. Yet, thanks to highly dubious methods, its successes and achievements served only to undermine the very goals for which it strove. But enough about Manchester City Football Club, because I'm here today to talk about something even worse, the Inquisition. If you know your Monty Python, you'll already have an idea of its main weapons, surprise, fear, ruthless efficiency, nice red uniforms, and an almost fanatical devotion to the Pope. Which, come to think of it, is almost the same as the main weapons of Manchester City. Ruthless efficiency, nice blue uniforms, and an almost fanatical devotion to the Pep. But with all due respect to Monty Python, they might not be the best guide to this historical phenomenon. That sketch is specifically about the Spanish Inquisition, whose operations might have been fearsome, but were more grindingly bureaucratic than ruthlessly efficient, and whose relationship to the Pope in Rome was rather indirect. Indeed, the first thing we need to get clear here is that the Inquisition was not only Spanish. It was in Rome, and in 1542, that six cardinals, who, to be fair, do wear red, were appointed as commissaries and inquisitors general by Pope Paul III. This so-called holy office was given universal authority to pursue heresy across all Christendom. In the 1550s, another pope, Paul IV, declared that the holy office in Rome has precedence over all the other tribunals, and that its ministers will be revered by all others who will submit humbly and obey them in every circumstance. But as this already implies, there were other tribunals, and had been for quite some time. In Spain, the Inquisition began under Ferdinand and Isabella in 1478, and though it was ultimately under papal authority, it was largely overseen by the Spanish crown. It was they who, for instance, appointed the notorious Dominican friar Tomás de Torquemada in 1482, with all the Spanish tribunals united under his leadership in 1483. Hence, as I said last time, in this context the Inquisition was a remarkable collaboration between secular and ecclesiastical authorities. Inevitably, the Spanish and also Portuguese Inquisitions took on a distinctive local character. For example, they were more likely to be staffed by jurists rather than theologians, as in Italy. Looking further back still, as I also mentioned last time, there were medieval precursors for the Inquisition, as for other aspects of the Catholic Reformation. The two main tasks of the Inquisition were persecuting heretics and censoring books. In both cases, the Inquisitors saw this as a kind of purification or benevolent correction. The general populace was protected from heretical ideas, and even the heretics themselves were meant to be helped by being encouraged to abandon their false beliefs. If this occasionally called for torturing and even killing them, well, doing violence to their bodies was just a way to purify their souls, a far more important matter. And these attitudes also went back to the Middle Ages. You may remember the attempts to stamp out dangerous teachings at the University of Paris in the 1270s. The list or index of condemned books produced during the Catholic Reformation is a kind of descendant of the lists of banned doctrines written up on that occasion. And for an earlier example of violence against heretics, we need look no further than the Albigensian crusade against the Cathars in France in the early 13th century. So maybe the Spanish Inquisition wasn't all that surprising after all, but neither was it business as usual. 
The religious diversity of the Iberian Peninsula is something we explored in a whole mini-series of this podcast back when we looked at Muslim and Jewish philosophers in Andalusia in episodes 146 to 170. In the modern day, the early medieval Iberian culture of convivencia, living together, is widely celebrated. But the Christian Spanish monarchs saw it rather as a problem to be overcome. The leaders of the so-called Reconquista, Reconquest, Ferdinand and Isabella, demanded in 1492 that Jews either convert or go into exile over the protests of a delegation that included the philosopher Isaac Abravanel. This was a change in policy. In 1477, just a year before the founding of the Inquisition, Isabella had said of the Jews, they are mine and under my care and protection. Because of their economic activities and intellectual attainments, Jews were actually a valuable segment of the population. The two monarchs had even employed Jewish doctors at their court. But since the middle of the 15th century, some Christians had been demanding limtieza, cleansing Spain of its Jews, and this became state policy in 1492. But it turned out to be not so simple. The Jewish Christian converts, or conversos, were under great suspicion of being insincere in their new faith, and that suspicion stuck to their children. Things like failing to eat pork or shellfish were seen as evidence of Judaizing, that is, secret adherence to the old faith. And thanks to the existence of the Inquisition, there was an organization in place that could turn these suspicions into legal proceedings. The conversos were understandably appalled and complained that people were being executed on the basis of false witness. Of a wave of executions in Aranda in 1501, one observer remarked that, of all those who were burnt, not one was a heretic. Up to 1520, the great majority of cases considered by the Inquisition had to do with Judaizing. It's estimated that about 2,000 people were put to death up to this time, more death sentences were passed, but the intended victims fled and were instead burnt in effigy. The sorry tale would be repeated about a century later, with the expulsion of the Spanish Muslims, or Moriscos. Given the large existing Muslim population, the crown was at first willing to show patience, and elected in 1528 to give them time to come to the true faith. Again, there were suspicions of feigned conversion, not least because Muslim jurists approved the use of taqiyya, or dissimulation, that is, simply pretending to be Christian. In a development that would have been exasperating for the authorities, many refused to believe that an absolute choice must be made. The Inquisition found it necessary to persecute people for saying that everyone should be allowed to practice his own religion, or that the Jew and the Muslim could each be saved in his own law. In 1582, royal patience ran out, and it was decided to deal with the Moriscos as was done with the Jews. Actually, the removal was not carried out until 1609 to 1614, when about 275,000 people were exiled, mostly to North Africa. That's vastly higher than the likely number of Jewish exiles in 1492, which is estimated at about 8,000, approximately half the Jewish population. Children were deliberately separated from their parents, lives were once again destroyed. These two waves of persecution suggest that religious intolerance in Iberia was directed against influence from, or secret adherence to, the two other Abrahamic religions. But I've left something out, a development that emerged between the campaigns against the conversos and the moriscos. This was, of course, the Reformation, which came along just as the suppression of Judaizing was beginning to die down around 1520. The number of Protestants in Spain started out small and stayed that way, but they were enough to reignite the Inquisition and deflect its attention to heretical teachings within the Christian fold. 
The first trial of a Lutheran came in 1523, and by mid-century, people were regularly being put on trial for Protestant leanings. This was largely a farce, as there was hardly any genuine sympathy for Protestantism in Spain, but the Inquisition was convinced otherwise. In Seville, one of its clerks hysterically remarked, This city is lost and full of Lutherans! For lack of Spanish heretics, the Inquisitors turned to persecuting foreigners. In his study of the Spanish Inquisition, Henry Common reports that in Barcelona, 51 supposed Lutherans were burnt in person or in effigy between the years 1552 and 1578, and every single one of them was from abroad. In both Italy and Spain, it was also possible to attract attention by aligning oneself with the humanism of Erasmus. As we saw in previous episodes, Erasmus never left the Catholic Church, but his philological work on the Bible and emphasis on personal spirituality seemed to be at least adjacent to Protestantism. This led to a deep suspicion of scholars who were inspired by his work, like, for example, Juan Gil, who was arrested in 1550 and found to be in error, though not heretical. Nonetheless, he wound up spending three years in jail and was forbidden ever to write about theology. Another case, which has been studied in depth by Luen Homza, concerned a humanist named Juan de Vargara. He was a highly placed intellectual who served as secretary to two archbishops in Toledo. He was also the Spaniard who corresponded most regularly with Erasmus, which is already the best humanist credential he could possibly have, but to be on the safe side, he also showed his philological skills by translating several works of Aristotle. He came into the clutches of the Inquisition because his brother was arrested for consorting with a group of mystics, the so-called alumbrados, meaning illuminated ones. If you ever used citrus juice as invisible ink to write messages when you were a kid, then be glad that the Inquisition wasn't around, because Vergara got in trouble for doing precisely that to pass messages to his brother in prison. Initially charged only with interfering with inquisitorial business, Vergara was vulnerable to further accusations of heresy due to his Erasmian sympathies, including a willingness to improve on the received Latin version of the Bible. He was ultimately given a hefty fine and confined to a monastery, where he died in 1557. One interesting feature of the records from this trial is that Vergara, highly intelligent and articulate, fearlessly met the accusations of the inquisitors with accusations of his own. The institution was corrupt, and the witnesses called to testify against him were malevolent or had been pressured into lying. Which sounds extraordinarily brave, but in fact Vergara was far from the only person in this period to raise doubts about the integrity, reliability, and motivation of inquisitorial processes. Most trials originated not with active investigations launched by the authorities, but with complaints by everyday people against one another. We saw that in the case of witchcraft trials, marginal members of society were often put on trial after dubious testimony given by their neighbors, and the same is true here. Conversos were vulnerable to accusers who were unconvinced that they were good Christians, or maybe just didn't like them. It was obvious that conversos were being punished for having parents who belonged to the wrong religion, and many noticed this and said so. Another point of criticism had to do with money. The Spanish Inquisition lacked sufficient funding as an institution and kept itself going with fines and confiscations of property. Predictably, this led some to say that supposed heretics were burnt only for their money, or that the Inquisition burnt only the rich. Apparently, a common saying had it that it is the goods that are the heretics. The history of opposition to the Inquisition is one point mentioned by what we might call revisionist historians. In the popular imagination, it is perhaps the most heinous episode of persecution in European history prior to the 20th century, and the numbers are certainly alarming, 
Estimates of the number of trials performed by the Inquisition over its history suggest that there were some 50,000 in Portugal, 200,000 in Spain, and 50 to 70,000 in Italy. But the percentage of these trials that resulted in executions were in the low single digits. For example, the 200,000 trials in Spain led to about 3,000 executions, while the 50,000 trials in Portugal yielded around 2,000 deaths. One reason for this is that death was a sentence exacted only against heretics who refused to admit their mistakes or who reoffended. Then too, remember that many thousands of people were being killed in religious violence elsewhere in Europe, not least in England, with the many executions under Queen Mary and Elizabeth. Arguably, if you were a real or suspected heretic, you might have been better off dealing with the Inquisition of Southern Europe than the enforcers of orthodoxy in other jurisdictions. It was important to the inquisitors that they were operating within a legal framework, which meant taking testimony and evaluating it, giving people a chance to admit their error, and even offering a kind of grace period during which people were invited to admit lapses without penalty. So, one modern scholar calls the Inquisition a deliberate and, at least by early modern standards, rather restrained system. Finally, I should say that although I've been talking indiscriminately about Spain throughout this whole discussion, there was actually a patchwork of territories across Iberia at this time, subject to different political regimes. In some of these places, the Inquisition was very active, in others it was almost non-existent, and there was also a good degree of variation across time. All these points are made in a book by the aforementioned Henry Kamen. Tellingly subtitled A Historical Revision, it argues in great detail that we misconceive this historical phenomenon if we think of it in terms of merciless, irrational, and inescapable violence, and that Spain in particular was less bloody than other regions of Europe in the period. This is all pretty convincing, even if it ultimately amounts to the claim that the Catholic Inquisition didn't quite win the race to the bottom. But it isn't really our business to decide whether, or rather how strongly, to condemn the Inquisitors. What we want to do is understand their impact on the history of philosophy. The foregoing details add, for instance, to our sense that in the 16th century, something was already emerging that comes closer to the modern conception of the state and its powers. Here, a legal regime was being used as a tool of ideological control. True, the enforcement was spotty and involved a good deal of improvisation and arbitrariness. But the bureaucratization of the whole process makes it more like modern totalitarianism than anything that happened in the medieval period. We can also think of this effort at enforcing conformity as the flip side of what we discussed under the heading of individualism. If Erasmus and the Reformation stood for inner spirituality, the Inquisition stood against any divergence between acceptable public observance and unacceptable private belief. One witness alluded to the difficulty of reaching the truth about such matters when he admitted that an accused man did go to Mass, but added, whether he does this with his heart, I don't know, since one cannot know the heart of another person. But the most directly relevant point is, of course, that philosophers were, from now on, going to be working within an unprecedented situation of systematic censorship. Here again, popular conceptions are really inaccurate, because despite such things as the aforementioned condemnations in Paris, philosophy in the medieval period was only very rarely and ineffectively controlled by authoritative institutions. One reason is a factor we can never mention enough, the printing press. It created the possibility of disseminating hundreds or thousands of copies of a single work, which in turn led to the possibility of trying to control that dissemination. Which brings us to the second main task of the Inquisition, the censoring of literature. Of course, a primary target of this effort was Protestant theological and polemical writing, as we can see from the many indices produced around Catholic Europe. 
but scientific works also fell prey to the censors, and the mere threat of being put on the index may have led to a good deal of self-censorship. It's important to bear this in mind, since as we're about to see, the Inquisition was not that successful in exerting control over what was actually published and read. The first index of prohibited books was published in Paris in 1544, followed by further lists in Louvain, Venice, Spain, Portugal, and then finally in 1559 at Rome, where the index was posted at St. Peter's Basilica and at the Palace of the Inquisition. There was a good deal of cut and paste involved here. A massive further index published in Spain might have looked impressive on a shelf, but it mostly just reproduced earlier lists, regardless of whether the books in question had any chance of turning up in Spain. For example, 54 of the titles were of books in the Dutch language, and only 1% of them were in Castilian, the language that Spaniards were most likely to want to read. I take this figure from Cayman, who remarks that the indices were basically lists of books that were both unobtainable and incomprehensible. The same goes for Portugal, where an index published in 1624 ran to over 1,000 pages because it reproduced the whole Roman index and added new material. The length of these indices alone suggests how unenforceable they were, to the point where we might wonder what in the world the inquisitors were thinking. Part of the answer is that this campaign of censorship was not really about making texts unavailable. It had at least as much, if not more, to do with marking certain authors and texts as heretical to alert the pious reader what they were dealing with. Thus, many censored books that have come down to us today simply have a line drawn through the name of the author to indicate that he was a Protestant. This act, the so-called damnatio memoriae, damning of memory, was intended to condemn, not to withhold the text from a potential audience. Similarly, librarians would keep copies of books but simply note prohibitor autor damnatus, meaning prohibited, author condemned. So this was the Renaissance equivalent of putting a parental advisory sticker on a record whose songs have swear words in the lyrics. More extreme, but still not very extreme, measures included a more literal kind of cut and paste, literally snipping out the name of a condemned author or gluing blank paper over it, a technique that could also be used with individual offending passages so that the rest of the book remained usable. A fairly hilarious case, mentioned by Hannah Marcus in her study of these early modern expurgations, is found in a copy of The History of Animals by Conrad Gessner. Since Gessner was a condemned author, someone pasted the Latin for pious doctrine over his name, leaving this to stand proudly at the top of a title page adorned with a woodcut image of a moose. Other methods noted by Marcus include blotting out names with ink, or more creatively, modifying the letters of a name to turn it into nonsense, like by transforming an F into an E by adding a line at the bottom. But these somewhat amusing examples shouldn't mislead us into thinking that the Inquisition's censorship activities were harmless. Some of the most interesting thinkers of the period really were taken out of circulation, or at least turned into forbidden material. A short list of philosophical authors would include Agrippa, Bodin, Bruno, Cardano, Copernicus, Galileo, Machiavelli, Melanchthon, Telesio, and of course, Erasmus. This is what a real cancel culture looks like. Scholars and scientists were put in a doubly awkward position. First, because they were not allowed access to important research. Even if they could in fact get at the books, they couldn't admit that they were using them. And second, because they were asked to help with the task of censoring and expurgating the forbidden literature. In Spain, the Holy Office made an appeal for such assistance in 1583, saying it hoped that learned and pious men would step forward to deal with the mass of heretical literature. Of these works, in order to be safely handled by everyone's hands, some parts must necessarily and constantly be destroyed and amputated. 
The two points were intimately connected. Because scholars could get a special license to consult books they really needed, especially if they contained information not available elsewhere. And the issuing of the licenses might be made contingent on the scholars' cooperation with the Inquisition. As is still the case with annoying administrative tasks handed out to academics, another downside of not helping is that someone else would wind up doing it, someone you'd rather wasn't involved. One doctor lamented that the Roman index had been produced without any physicians or philosophers present to give expert advice and a royal chaplain in Spain observed that the censors there were usually non-entities who know not a word either of Greek or of Hebrew and lack either judgment or capacity. Once the Inquisition got past indexing authors simply because they were known Protestants, they were drawn into the more challenging task of deciding which specific tenets and doctrines had to be censored and expurgated. One of our former interview guests, Guido Giglioni, has studied the case of Juan Huarte de San Juan, a medical author whose work had a chapter removed from it because it agreed with a controversial claim of the ancient Dr. Galen, namely that the rational soul is dependent on the body. Huarte responded by simply republishing the book with the same ideas, but emphasizing the good theological basis for his claim. In bestowing his gifts, God adjusts himself to the natural good of each individual, matching the virtues and other features of the soul to the dispositions of the body. Another interesting case would be the handling of astrology. A study of this topic in the Indices of Iberia shows that the inquisitors usually bent over backwards to allow discussion of this topic. One could not invoke astrology or magic to suggest that humans lack free will, as by saying that all our actions are determined in advance by the stars, but prognostication was allowed for use in agriculture, navigation, and medicine. Such fine judgments were beyond the capacity of some censors. At Padua, a Dominican theologian was asked to expurgate the works of the formidable scholastic thinker Jacopo Zapparella and said that it would just be too difficult and time-consuming, as it would require turning the work upside down with different interpretations, making different links, and carefully putting together different discourses. This is one of the many ironies of the Inquisition, and perhaps of censorship more generally. If you want to forbid ideas intelligently, you really need to engage with them and understand them. We're now done with this episode, but not with the Inquisition, since in future episodes we'll be looking at its impact on individual thinkers, not least Galileo. And I have to warn you that in the next couple of episodes, we'll be looking at something else that is even more appalling. No, not Manchester City, or Real Madrid either, which is my second least favorite football team. But they're kind of relevant, actually, because Real means royal, and we will be investigating further activities of the Spanish crown. To be specific, the beginnings of colonialism in the Americas at the hands of the Spanish and Portuguese. This might sound rather dispiriting and grimly predictable, like yet another league title for Man City or a Champions League title for Madrid, but it won't be as bad as all that, since we will be touching next time on the scientific breakthroughs connected to global exploration. And in the episode after that, we'll discover that some philosophers did raise their voices to protest what was being done to the indigenous Americans. That's the next couple of episodes here on The History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. <laughs> <laughs>